I would say if I were giving a talk somewhere, I would encourage members of the church to come to church, learn what they can there, but realize that they're probably going to be frustrated if they want to go deep, but then go home and dig in all you want with anything. Read deeply, read broadly, study, do whatever you can to inform yourself. I really believe that the Sunday experience was not meant to be all-encompassing experience for us as far as gospel learning is concerned. We really have to learn to be self-reliant gospel learners and learn much on our own. Sunday is not going to do it for us. Welcome to LDS Perspectives Podcast, where we explore aspects of LDS doctrine, history, and culture. Digging deeper and having a whole lot of fun. Learning about things that affect our lives and our faith. We are everyday Mormons sharing extraordinary conversations. This is Russell Stevenson with LDS Perspectives. Dave Marsh is the content developer for Gospel Study Materials. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. Good to be here. I appreciate you having me. Tell us about your background. Okay. I guess certain people come in with different experiences and different levels of education. I happen to have a PhD and have taught seminary and institute for about 35 years. And as far as qualifications up at the church, most people have a master's degree. They like to see it. If you're going to come up there to write curriculum, they like you to have something along those lines or have had a substantial amount of experience in teaching and learning the gospel. And what was your PhD in? I uh, did my PhD in uh, the sociology of religion and family studies. It was an interdepartmental program at the time. Basically, I studied the influence of different things on spiritual experiences among teenagers and young adults in the church. You know, what is it that helps them to have spiritual experiences? You know, a lot of the conversations surrounding a curriculum and a, the correlation committee is, first of all, how are things decided to be definitive? How are they seen as, are they seen as official? What's the process by which something goes from being an idea or proposal to receiving the imprimatur of the church label? First of all, let's just, let's separate correlation from curriculum because they are different departments and they have different functions. So we can talk about correlation, but let's let's just tackle. Let's talk uh, about both. Curriculum. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. As far as curriculum is concerned, there's a there's basically a, a six stage process that all curriculum materials go through. And when I say six stage, it may you know it depends on the product that is being developed, and how long it is, and the usefulness of it. That's all determined up front. There's basically six stages. The first is to think about the project itself. We call it the the concept stage. And there's about six or seven steps that we go through to think about the concept. So we don't develop a lot of materials. We do some research. We go out amongst the members of the church. We have the research and information division of correlation, which I'll talk about later. They'll do some research for us, find out, you know, what members need, what's going on. We'll talk with the brethren about it. And then as a small committee of people, the curriculum development team, then we'll sit down and put together a proposal that will go up to the brethren to look at and to approve. Then the next stage is to develop a prototype. So once the brethren have approved it, we also have correlation look at it so that they see right from the very get-go that what we're doing seems in line with church policies and practices and doctrine. 
And can you give me a, an example of this? You know, maybe a, a concept with which Latter-day Saints would be readily familiar. Yeah, sure. So like the books that we use in Priesthood and Relief Society, the Teachings of Presidents, the Church series, with those books, we actually called a committee of uh, members of the church from different backgrounds with different kinds of experiences. We brought them in and then staff working with these called committee members start to develop those books. So for example, with Howard W. Hunter, we would give the committee every talk that he's ever given. And their first task was to just read through all of his talks and to figure out the different topics that he focused on throughout his ministry. And are these individuals various kinds of professionals? Are they academics? Are they business people? How do you decide who ends up on this committee? We get referrals from anywhere we can get them. Stake presidents, sometimes general authorities will refer people to us. We come up with names ourselves, and then we actually fill out a form that's about five or six pages long with information about them, and we will send recommendations to the brethren for approval. All of those committee members are called, it's a general level church calling, it's not a local level, and so they are called by a general authority, usually a member of the 70, and they are set apart by them, and then they work with the staff to develop the curriculum. And their backgrounds are varied. They can be, we had one that was a plumber. We try to get some that have some research experience, some writing experience sometimes. Well, always there's an editor assigned to work with the group as well. You have the concept, right? So in this case, the concept would be, we need to have a manual on Howard W. Hunter. Yeah. And then you need to develop a prototype. Tell me about that process. So usually with a prototype is a table of contents so that we can show the whole outline of what we think should happen for a year in that particular curriculum product. And then we'll usually develop anywhere from one to three chapters to show different types of chapters and the content. We also go through a process of, of instructional design so that there's, well, there's not only instructional design, but graphic design involved as well and information design. So we'll look at all those things and put some uh, lessons together, usually, like I said, one to three, and then we'll send those up to the brethren for approval. Now, when you're developing the prototype, are you drawing in any kind of explicit directive from general authorities, or do these ideas kind of bubble up from uh, from the ground level? Yeah, that's, it, it happens both ways. Sometimes the brethren will come to us and say, hey, we're thinking about this. Could you show us what that might look like? Other times the staff will have an idea and they'll send it up through their directors and managing director to the brethren and say, hey, we're thinking about this. We think this might be beneficial for members. What do you think? And then they'll look at it. Now, you, you say the brethren. Are, are there uh, certain general authorities who are assigned to this task? Yeah. Every department of the church has members of the 70 that oversee them. They're called executive directors. Right now, for example, in the priesthood department, we have six executive directors. One is designated as the executive directors, and then the others are assistant executive directors. And then every department has a managing director who is not a general authority. They're staff level, but they're the sort of the number one guy in the department. And so we go up through those lines. And uh, then after the, um, the members of the Quorum of the Seventy, our executive directors, there's also usually two apostles that are assigned to oversee the work that's going on in each department. Now, how often is it that you end up seeing a for lack of a better word, resistance on either end, where you know either an idea that your committee has come up with is not accepted, 
or in some cases where your committee hears a directive from a general authority and says, okay, that, that isn't, you know, that isn't working with us, or maybe we'd like to go in a different direction. I don't know that I would call it resistance as much as there's a working together. One of the things I learned over the years of managing curriculum development was the process of getting to what was right to do was an iterative process. We would present something to them and they would say, well, you know, this is a really good idea. What if you thought about this or that? You know, and so then we would go back and do more thinking. We would revise things accordingly. We would come back and say, okay, here's what we're thinking based on what direction you gave us. What do you think about this? And then again, they would tell us how they felt, what they thought about things. And so there were just many iterations sometimes in developing a, a certain product. And typically, do you find that a kind of a, a middle ground is found? I mean, maybe you take some ideas from, you know, from the upper levels and some ideas from the lower levels. You know, I don't know that there's a middle ground. To be honest with you, the attitude that when the brethren say something to us, they're usually saying it because they have a feeling about something. And so we try to follow that very carefully. What turns out is a lot of times it will be what they said and we follow it. Sometimes they will say some things and we'll go back and work on it. And as we're working on it, we'll discover that there's a problem with doing it exactly like that so that we'll go in a little bit of a different direction, but still satisfying the recommendations and the directions they gave us. So it's not an A or a B, but it's a C. So you're following the spirit and, in many cases, the letter of what they said, but you know, there might be a little bit of tweaking. That's exactly right. Let me give you one example. We, uh, I work in gospel topics right now. There's 265 of those. It, it's the location on LDS.org where the, we house those 11 essays that everybody's familiar with. Not very many people are realize that there's 250 other uh, gospel topics in there. But we were working on one on religious freedom, and we had written an overview for it, and we felt pretty good about it. And, and we're, we were reviewing it with our the supervisor of our committee, who was uh, a general authority, a, a member of the 70. And he just sat back in his chair one day, and he said, you know, I wonder if we ought to just let the Office of General Counsel look at this particular topic. And we said, okay, we'll do that. And we sent it over there and we were glad we did because in reviewing it, they were in the midst of all kinds of debates and discussions about how to present religious freedom out to the world from the church and how to say it in words that make sense to people and that don't, uh, you know, cause a firestorm, so to speak. And so it, it went through uh, several months of revisions before it came to the point where it was acceptable to them. So we were grateful. To this day, I believe that he was inspired, even though in sitting in the meeting, it almost seemed like just a thought hit him and, and it was just part of the conversation. But I really believe that it was an inspiration that came to him that we ought to do that. Because they were tuned in to aspects of the conversation that maybe uh, other voices, including those in that room, were not tuned in. Yeah, that's exactly right. And that happens a lot with almost every product. We don't just use in-house, so to speak, people. The staff go out and talk with people. When we get finished with a prototype, for example, if it's approved by the brethren, we'll actually take it out to members of the church and professionals out there. We'll have them look at it, evaluate it, even try it, and then we'll take all that feedback and come back and revise the product according to the research we do. You know, I had a personal experience with this during my mission. You know, I, I served in San Diego and it was around 2002 or 2003 when they were in the process of transitioning from you know the the six discussions to preach my gospel yeah. and there was an intermediary period where it was actually suggested that missionaries write their own discussions 
and we were one of the pilot groups for experimenting with that. Yeah. Um, you know, that didn't last for very long. It wasn't too long before they moved to preach my gospel. I remember that we were explicitly told that, you know, we were trying out something new and to, you know, to see how it worked. And the language that they used to describe it is that the Holy Ghost would be our teacher 24-7, right? We would no longer be relying upon the roteness of the original six discussions. Yes, and that very thing is what happens with almost every piece of curriculum that's written. It's taken out and tested. In fact, there's three things. One of the general authorities once told me that good decision-making is based on research, reason, and revelation. And those three elements go into creating a product for, that goes out to the church. We do good research. We try and make sure we understand everything that's going on, what it, how it's going to affect people. We try and take everything to, into account. We enlist, the, like I said, the re, research and information division of the church to do official uh, sociological kinds of surveys and research for us. We go and test the product out there with members in stakes and wards. And then we also follow the revelation we, we believe that the brethren are receiving the directive. All right, so let's go back to this uh, six-stage process. You have the concept, you have the prototype. What comes next? Yeah, so then we develop a manuscript. So with the uh, the Howard W. Hunter book, for example, we would put together, the, I should say the committee working with the staff would put together all of the chapters, the sequence of them, and they would put together the quotes in the order they would want them, and it would just be a Word document text, no graphic design, no pictures or anything like that. And that's called the manuscript. And that itself goes up the line for approval. And when I keep, I keep mentioning the up the line for approval, basically what that means is it has to be approved by the manager of curriculum development, the director of curriculum development, the managing director of the curriculum department, or right now the priesthood department. It's got to be approved by our executive directors in their meeting that they have regularly. Then it goes up to the executive council, what we call the PFEC, Priesthood and Family Executive Council. That's where two or three apostles sit, and it's approved by them. And sometimes it will even have to go up to the full quorum of the Twelve and even the First Presidency. Under what circumstances would it go to the full quorum of the Twelve and the First Presidency? Yeah, so sometimes it's just a specific issue. I remember one particular chapter in the Joseph Smith book. There's only 47 chapters. There's not 48. And we usually try and have 48 chapters because we have 48 weeks of the year, 52 minus two state conferences and two general conferences. So there's usually 48 Sundays of the year that we have curriculum. But in that book, there's only 47. And the reason is because there was a chapter that we developed on faith, and it was based on the lectures on faith. And then as we were doing research, we found out that there wasn't solid evidence that Joseph Smith was the author of that. That Sidney Rigdon may have played a major role. That's right. And so in, the brother writing them. Yeah, yes. sorry. So the brethren didn't feel comfortable with putting that in a book about Joseph Smith's teachings when we weren't very sure about how much influence he had on that. We know he had some influence, but we don't know that he was the author of that. So that chapter was taken out and that that issue went up to the Quorum of the Twelve to help make that decision. And do you tend to find that the Quorum of the Twelve, in your experience, have been open to you know the work of scholars and the work of historians, or do you find that they have been resistant to that for one reason or another? No, I have always found them to actually to be very on top of the scholarship that's out there. Hmm. In fact, in this case that I was talking about, it was an apostle who was aware of an article that was written by one of the scholars down at BYU and brought that to our attention. I have never felt them to be resistant 
to any sort of information, if it would help them make a, a, a good, well-informed decision, they've always been welcoming. Uh, in fact, there have been several times where we as a curriculum development staff were asked to put together information for them, which included from the scholarly world, if I can say it that way. Let's then talk about, you know, you have a manuscript, then what happens? So once we have it done, then like I said, it goes up the uh, it goes to the auxiliary presidency, as I was mentioning, who who it goes to. Aside from the general authorities, it also goes to the auxiliary presidencies, the general auxiliary presidencies of the Sunday school, young men, young women, and primary. They all get a chance to look at it. Sometimes they'll even have their board members look at it. So we get feedback from hundreds of different people on almost every product that is being presented. So the Relief Society, they are able to yes. say whether this is acceptable or not acceptable? Yes. Okay. Yeah, in fact, uh, you know, it's been very important. Sometimes I've gone into a meeting with a general authority and to present something, and one of the first questions they'll ask is, have the sisters seen this? And if I haven't shown that particular product to the sisters, they'll say, when you do, get come back with us. <laughs> The auxiliaries look at it, the primary, the Relief Society, and one general authority said, hey, have the sisters seen this? Have you found instances in your work where the Relief Society said, hey, this particular you know, manuscript, especially one dealing with church history, it doesn't really uh, leave much of a place for the voices of women and for their stories and their experiences? Yeah, we've had those conversations. In fact, even more recently, we've been including some, like, for example, we have a gospel topics team that I work with. There's about 12 people on that. We have representatives from every department in the church almost, except for physical facilities and the carpool folks. But we also asked that a a member of the Relief Society or their board come and be a part of that so that we made sure that we got the voice of the sisters in the product so that it's not being neglected. And in your experience, how has curriculum changed because of the influence of the sisters, you if, know, at, if at all? Yeah, I, I guess I. that's a good question. I'm not sure that I've ever thought about that. I, I don't know that it's changed. I do believe that it's better. At least since I've been there, there have always been sisters on the committees that we've worked with to develop it. So that's not a recent thing to put the sisters on a committee. Like I said, it is sort of recent that we had someone from the board of the Relief Society come on our committee. But for the past 15 years, as far as I know, there have been sisters on all the committees that have written curriculum products. Okay, but you're not able to necessarily cite a specific example in which their input changed the direction of the writing of that piece of curriculum. Well, okay, I see what you're saying. No, there have been times where we'll get feedback from the sisters, and because of that feedback, we will change something. But again, I don't see that as any different than anybody else on the committee or any other feedback. But there have been instances where we've gotten feedback from the sisters, and it has changed something that we've done. All right, excellent. So this manuscript is, you know, sent out to various auxiliaries. Where do you go from there? Well, so once that's approved, once the manuscript is approved, like I said, that's just the text now. Then we come back and and we do all we take all the feedback and we make revisions based on all that feedback and including correlation will give us feedback as well. And then we create what's called the prototype. And it's got the graphic design, the information design, and everything is in it. And then we send that out for review. With the teachings of presence, the church books, 
those actually went to the First Presidency and Quorum of the Twelve. Every single one of them were sent to every member of the First Presidency and Quorum of the Twelve and to I don't know how many members of the Quorum of the Seventy because it went to our Department 70 and then it went to other depart- 70s in other departments. Uh, and again, it just depends. Like if, if we're helping, you know, if we're preparing a missionary preparation course, then we will send that over to the missionary department and they will send it up as far up their line as they think they ought to send that up so that it gets a good review from them. So at that point, then the prototype is seen by all of the auxiliaries as well as the First President Quorum of the Twelve. And again, I'm talking about the uh, the teachings of presence of the church. And then we get feedback from them. We usually give them a couple of months because of their busy schedules. They'll send us feedback, and then we will take that feedback and revise it accordingly and then go on to uh, the next stage. I recall when the Joseph Smith Manual came out, uh, there was one sentence acknowledging Joseph Smith's practice of plural marriage. Did the inclusion of that sentence represent a shift in the writing of curriculum, or was that rather unremarkable? No, that was unremarkable. It was something that we do all the time. In fact, it's funny you should say that because I have a copy of the um, the page that you're talking about because it created no small stir, at least for one reporter in one particular newspaper. This is what it says. This book deals with teachings of the prophet Joseph Smith that have application to our day. For example, this book does not discuss such topics as the prophet's teachings regarding the law of consecration as applied to stewardship of property. The Lord withdrew this law from the church because the saints were not prepared to live it. This book also does not discuss plural marriage, and then it has a a few more sentences about just a, a brief history of plural marriage, and it was in and then it was out kind of a thing. That's the only statement about plural marriage that's in there. But the important thing about what I just read was this book deals with the teachings of Joseph Smith that have application to our day. And this goes into how, how you know the curriculum staff decides what is included in a manual. If you keep in mind the principle of the most recent and the most relevant, that principle guides the things that we do. So, for example, we tried, and I guess I need to back up a little bit and say, with the teachings of the presidents of the church, the word recent doesn't really fit, but the word relevant does. The idea of, okay, of all the things that Joseph Smith or Brigham Young or Heber J. Grant said, what are the principles that they taught that are most relevant to members of the church in our day? And that guides the the committee in deciding what to put in a book and what not to put in a book. No, this notion of relevance is very interesting to me. Uh, what kinds of criteria would a committee use to determine relevance? There's a couple of things, I guess. One is, is it being taught by the current prophets and apostles of the church? Is it a current practice or policy of the church? Those kinds of things. Is it a pattern in the scriptures? When you answer those kinds of questions, you help determine the relevancy of a particular principle that needs to be highlighted in a given manual. If you look at the Brigham Young manual, I know that there were some also also some concerns that it didn't talk about plural marriage at all, yeah. right? You know, Brigham Young, all of the advice that he was giving was in reference to monogamous unions. 
it sounds like this would be the rationale dictating how that material was presented in the Brigham. Yeah, that's Manual. exactly right. I, th- I think you know historians probably are would be a little bit concerned that that there was not a lot of polygamy shown in that. But again, these books were not meant to be history books. I'm talking about teachings of presence yes. of the church. They were not to be meant meant to be historical. They did present a little bit of history. But you can't look at any one of those books and say, hey, this is, this is a book about the history of Joseph Smith or Brigham Young. And they were more doctrinal in nature, teaching mm-hmm. the doctrines of the kingdom. And so just because of that, many of their stories, many of the teachings they had that are not relevant today, obviously we don't practice polygamy today. So there was no reason for, for the curriculum to include things like that. Should its absence be read as an indication that Latter-day Saints should not learn about plural marriage? Are, are these manuals intended to be like all-inclusive of all things that you, you ever need to know about Joseph Smith or Brigham Young? Yeah, great question. And, and the answer to that is no. The, the, nothing. There is not a single product that I know of that we've developed or that I've seen developed that is all-inclusive. I think it would be good for members of the church to have this perspective, a worldwide perspective, that when curriculum is developed for the church, it is developed for the whole church, not just for the Wasatch Front. And I think that's why a lot of those who have been longtime members and gone through you know, repeated years of the same material, they wonder why we can't get more in-depth in our gospel doctrine classes or in Priesthood Relief Society. For me, the answer is that's not what the, that Sunday three hours of worship is for. That three hours of Sunday has got to be the most basic of doctrine and principles. We just can't go in depth. You've got 48 weeks, you've got 35 minutes, that's if the, you know, the, the announcements don't go long. So you can't cover everything in any book of scripture. You can't cover every church history event for any particular period of time. So you have to decide what you're going to do. The best way to do that is say, okay, what is happening today that is relevant to members of the church and that will help them live the gospel today? What doctrine do they need to study? Most of the time, you'll see a chapter in books on faith, repentance, baptism, some of the basics of of the gospel. Now, having said that, I would say if I were giving a talk somewhere, I would encourage members of the church to Come to church, learn what they can there, but realize that they're probably going to be frustrated if they want to go deep, but then go home and dig in all you want with anything. Read deeply, read broadly, study, do whatever you can to inform yourself. I really believe that the Sunday experience was not meant to be all-encompassing experience for us as far as gospel learning is concerned. We really have to learn to be self-reliant gospel learners and learn much on our own. Sunday is not going to do it for us. So this manuscript is tested, tried, sent out. What's the next step after that? When we get the prototype developed, that's basically it. I mean, when when it's sent out and we we get all the feedback, we make the revisions. Like I said, we develop the prototype. You've got the graphics. That's right, everything. And once that's all approved, then we start a process of the translation and awareness. And that those are the last stages of this six-stage process I'm telling you about. We want to make sure that members are aware of it. Like, for example, we already know now that next year we're going to be studying the teachings of President Gordon B. Hinckley. It's out. It's online. You can actually access it right now online in Gospel Library and on LDS.org. You'll see in January an article will come out in the January Enzyme and Leahona about the Gordon B. Hinckley, President Hinckley, and, and his life, as well as some of the teachings that are in the book. 
we start the process of translating the book so that it gets out in the, I, I believe those books are translated in, it, it, it's been a long time since I've worked on those books, but I think uh, there was about 27 languages they were translated into, it may be more now. So that translation process is takes a long time. You know, the obstacles presented by the translation process, process I mean, they can be real, they can be substantial. Um, we are always thinking, how can we get this out to, to as many members of the church as possible? There's actually a plan. It's called the Worldwide Plan for the Translation of Church Materials. And you, when, when you first begin a product, you have to ask yourself, how many languages do we think this needs to go into? That begins right at the very first of a developmental process so that you're looking, you're working towards that end goal of those languages and you're looking at the audience to whom you're writing this product for. And what is the final stage in this process? So then it's just a matter of printing. And now, have you ever had a conversation with you know, anybody in your line of work or you know, anybody in your committees or with general authorities in which... They indicated that they may not want to put a certain idea out there because it is difficult doctrine, right? Or it's deep, or it may be too much for those who are still young in the faith. Uh, I don't know that, you know, there's been that direct kind of a conversation, but, you know, there are conversations about, okay, what will be helpful? What's most recent? What's most relevant? And when you ask yourself those questions, what's most recent and what's most relevant, then that usually helps you to ferret out the things that uh, maybe aren't going to be as helpful. We've got to face it, right? There are some things in our church that when you present them in a Sunday school class, they're going to be upsetting to people. And who? nobody wants that. We're not about putting in obscure kinds of statements or even statements that have been made famous because they've been put out in the media and stuff. If they're going to upset people, that's not the intent of mm -hmm. curriculum of the church. It's to help us study the gospel and learn how to live it in our lives. And, and if there is a statement that maybe doesn't quite fit or that we're unsure that it's really what the church wants to represent, then of course it'll be there'll be a decision made to keep that out. Now, could you see some uh, contexts in which upsetting people, as it were, might actually be helpful to, or you know, or useful in their spirituality? I think of that axiom: you know, the gospel is about comforting the irritable and irritating the comfortable. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. I, I guess I, I worry about people who deliberately who think it, we should deliberately discomfort people. I'm not sure that's a good attitude to start from, but I also recognize that just anybody who is learning the doctrine, who is studying the scriptures consistently and deeply on a daily basis, mm -hmm. they will become uncomfortable anyway, because mm -hmm. they will be learning things that they didn't know before, and they'll have to readjust their thinking and their beliefs based on the new learning they have. So. Mm -hmm. I guess I'm not one who's willing to say, I'm going to go into this class trying to disturb people. To, to stir the pot, yes, right? Yes, that's right. I'm going to teach the doctrine. I'm going to show it with quotes that are authoritative, with scriptures. That are recent and that's relevant. That's right. And if someone in the class doesn't understand that, my desire is not to upset them so they go home disturbed by something, but to say, okay, this is new. Let's talk about it. Let's see mm. why it didn't fit in with what you used to believe. In fact, one of the skills I try and teach people is to say, when you're studying the scriptures, you need to think about what you used to believe up to that point. Does it match? Are you reading 
reading this particular scripture, say, on the resurrection, and you've learned something in the past, do the two match together? And if not, then how are you going to reconcile them? I think that's a very healthy process to go through. But to deliberately write a curriculum manual for that purpose, I, I don't know if that's... Uh, well, yeah, with the intent of subverting people, and right. with the, like where that is the end goal, right? right? Rather than you know getting at the truth or getting at reality. That's right. There's no attempt to stay away from reality, at least in my experience. And I think also your comment that you know these manuals aren't intended to be the end-all, be-all of gospel or, or a LDS historical learning. That's right. Two, I think if we if we look at this in a little bit of a historical perspective, at least in the in the recent history, things that we didn't include in some of the manuals 10 or 15 years ago, we might have included them today. Things have changed. Things have come to light. What's happening with the Joseph Smith Papers Project, they've shown us some things out of that research that we wouldn't have included in the manuals before because we weren't aware of them. Now we are. The information that's coming out in these 11 essays, we probably wouldn't have included a lot of that about the Book of Abraham in a curriculum manual on the Pearl of Great Price 10, 15 years ago. I think scholars have known this stuff for years. I mean, I've got articles like on the Book of Abraham right from the back in the 60s, at least. But I think the, the scholarly world tends to be in a bit of a, an echo chamber where they're sharing their papers with each other, they're printing in their journals, but regular folks don't subscribe to those journals. At least they didn't used to. But with the onset of the internet and the availability now of information, it has changed things and more information has come to light. I'll give you an example. With the George Albert Smith book, we did not include any struggles he had with depression. We did have a statement in there about he had some health concerns. I mean, it was a very very nebulous kind of a thing. I suspect today we probably would include that. At least I would advocate to include that, whether or not anybody else would. So time has changed things. Information that was once not seen as relevant to the saints now has become relevant. You see, and, and this notion of relevance, I mean, that's such, it, it sounds like really a guiding principle really in is. the writing of the curriculum. Yeah, that's right. It, it was for us, and it still is today. I still use it when I'm working on gospel topics. You know, when I, when we think about, okay, what talks are we going to include for members of the church to look at in order to learn a specific topic? We ask ourselves, which is the most recent and is it the most relevant? And if we don't have a recent one, you know, like for example, nobody has talked about the Book of Mormon like President Benson did. So those aren't necessarily recent talks, but they are some of the most relevant talks. And so we'll keep those in, you know, for people to look at. Because the Book of Mormon is still, you know, a major part of it. Exactly. Yeah, that's right. Now, we talked about the curriculum, um, you know, the, the writing of curriculum in all these different committees, you know, the missionary department, but we haven't really talked about the correlation committee. And it seems that they don't have the same kinds of boundaries in their influence that these other committees do, right? You know, the curriculum does a certain thing, missionary department does a certain thing, but the correlation committee, it seems that they have their fingers in all of the pots, as it were. Absolutely. Okay, so talk to me about their role in this process. So let me state, first of all, I don't know if a lot of people know this, but the correlation committee of the church is the first presidency in the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles. That's the correlation committee. And they're the ones that establish the doctrine. In fact, let me just read to you the, the charter statement of correlation. It says this. The Council of the First Presidency and the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles constitutes the Correlation Committee of the Church. 
which is responsible to establish and approve all church priorities, policies, programs, and procedures to ensure that the Lord's Church remains as one in doctrine, principle, and practice in order to effectively assist the Lord in His work to bring to pass the immortality and eternal life of man. So that's the Correlation Committee of the Church, and they establish the policies. Then there's an executive committee that is, again, it's made up of some of the apostles and and some members of the Quorums of the Seventy. I believe there's at least one staff member that sits on that who's probably the managing director of the Correlation Department. I'm not sure about that because I don't go to those meetings, but they probably include somebody that's an executive secretary for them. And they oversee the review of proposals and materials. So they're sort of the arm of the Correlation Committee that helps oversee the policies that the Correlation Committee has established. All right. So the committee that when people talk about the Correlation Committee, they're imagining various members of the church, maybe various general authorities. But what you're saying now is that the Correlation Committee is, in fact, the First Presidency of the Quorum of the Twelve, and then they designate somebody to sort of carry out their will. Yes, but but let me, there is a correlation committee the way you described it, but I, I just wanted to make sure that everybody understands that the correlation committee of the church that establishes policy is the first presidency and quorum of the twelve. And then you have this executive committee, and that executive committee also oversees the correlation department, which is sort of the third tier now, where you're down on the staff level. And you've got full-time people that are in the correlation department, and you've got committees that help, that are called members of the church. And this is the group that probably most everybody thinks about. They don't think about the First Presidency of the Twelve. They're thinking about that committee that, that we're talking about right now. When we're talking about the Correlation Committee, we should, we should be thinking of the First Presidency of the That's right. Of the Twelve. That's right. Yeah, see, one of the things that sometimes I worry, that, that in fact, I, I've hear, heard people say this, is they think that when something comes out from the church that they, they think it's just some staff members that have done that and put it out without the brethren's approval. That never happens. There is nothing that is done in curriculum that goes out to the members of the church that isn't reviewed by the correlation committee and department of the church. Okay, It all goes through them. So the, the correlation department actually has three divisions in it. One is the evaluation department. The other is research and information division. And then the other is intellectual property. Between those three, they review all the materials for those specific purposes. And and what are the missions of each of those divisions? So uh, let me read to you some of the things that, that are said as far as this charter is concerned. The correlation department, so talking about all three of those groups I just told you, assist the correlation executive committee to fulfill its responsibilities through the correlation evaluation, research information, and intellectual property divisions. Correlation does not establish any policies. Rather, it ensures by review, evaluation, and consultation that priorities, policies, and procedures approved by the First Presidency and the Council of the Twelve are consistently and uniformly followed and applied. So that's the correlation department. They assist the correlation committee. Okay. Then you've got the evaluation division, which is responsible for the review and evaluation of all proposed activities, programs, policies, procedures, practices, plans, terminology, and other materials intended for use throughout the church to ensure that they are consistent with the doctrine and with the established priorities and policies that have been established by the First Presidency and Quorum of the Twelve. The Intellectual Property Division is responsible for intellectual property and data privacy review and oversight, including ensuring established establishment of visual identity. And then the Research Information Division is responsible for research and review that 
that includes providing timely and relevant and reliable information to general authorities and church administrators. They couple with us to take the product we have and they take it out there and do studies on it and do research, do surveys. They actually implement it and then they do follow-up to find out how it's, is that product fulfilling what we meant it to do? In my conversations with various members of the church's research staff and various departments, as I understand it, sometimes they will send materials to the correlation department and you know they'll get feedback from them. Are we to take that feedback as coming down from the first presidency in the Quorum of the Twelve, or is that just coming from the correlation department without having been reviewed by the the correlation, the top tier right, of the correlation right. committee? Over the years, I have learned that when I submit something that to the correlation department. By the way, I I just need to say, I always, I try and always go to them and talk with them face-to-face about products that I'm working on because I find if I get myself set right at the first, I'm going to be okay and I don't have to make a big change when they see the final product come out. For example, the manuscript that we write, we'll submit that to them to review and then they will give us feedback. And what I found is that this is not something, thus saith the Lord, you must do this. Here's some recommendations. It's always done in a very humble kind of a a mild way to say, we've looked at this and this doesn't seem to fit. Can you figure out how to redo this so that it, it matches more closely with what we believe the doctrine is? Or this may give the wrong impression. Can you work on that kind of a thing? And I found that about 90 to 95%, they make great suggestions. There's usually about 5 or 10% where I need to go back and say, hey, this is what we were trying to do with that. And they'll say, oh, we see. We didn't understand that. That seems okay. So we can work with them. The staff level I'm talking about, before it's, it's sent up to the brethren for their final review. So, you know, let's talk about this idea of officialness. There are several Latter-day Saints. They see a manual, they see a publication with the imprimatur of the Church on the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. When they see that, they associate that publication with doctrinal credibility, even doctrinal uh, definitiveness. Are they right to do so? Yeah, I think they should. Okay. I do. Those manuals, again, like I said, they may not be perfect, but I don't think you'll find anything in there that is so disturbing that it's going to ruin somebody's testimony. Mm-hmm. They they really have been through enough review. I, I think you could say, yeah, this this if, this represents what the church believes about this particular thing. Mm. I guess the other thing maybe that that would be helpful is to to realize that the whole effort of correlation is to see that there's unity in the church. That is not an easy thing to establish. In fact, no, it is not. As I've worked with correlation, as I came to know that the correlation depart, or excuse me, the correlation committee of the church was the first president quorum of the twelve. I actually believe that it's part of the reason why we won't go into another general apostasy that correlation will actually help us to avoid the disunity that comes from not having a unified curriculum. Because correlation is a group of people, including the brethren and the staff they use to help them, who are very good at knowing the doctrine and the policies and being able to help the rest of us stay within those parameters, it helps to keep unity among us as members of the church. You mentioned that, you know, one of the struggles of, you know, producing curriculum is, you know, having global church in mind. In your experience, do members of the correlation department have the kinds of backgrounds and experiences in which they would be able to consider the needs of the global church? Yeah. Or are they coming from a, a rather isolated context, grew up along the Wasatch Front, that they didn't necessarily do a lot of world travel or have lots of knowledge about 
other cultures, etc. I don't know all the members of the called correlation committee, but I'm sure if you looked at their resume, you would find that they have traveled the world. These are people who are mm. very experienced, very well educated. They're well traveled around the world. The other thing is, you know, if, if you look at a composite resume of the Quorum of the Twelve and the First Presidency, there is nobody, in, no other group of people in this world that has the experience that they have. I mean, they're meeting with educational leaders, with civic leaders, and they're meeting with the regular Joe and Jane members of the church on a weekly basis. And then they come back and report to each other and talk with each other about their experiences. To think about that we are guided by a group of people in this church who are, and I'm talking about the Correlation Committee of the Church, First Presidency and Quorum of the Twelve, who are educated, experienced, and know a lot about worldwide issues that are relevant to all of us. On top of that, they have revelation. They are prophets, seers, and revelators. I don't know why we wouldn't want to follow them. And again, talking about now the staff level, the correlation committee, these aren't just you know people off the street who don't know anything. They're pretty well educated and experienced themselves. Uh, they know the gospel well. I think they're vetted very carefully before they are called to be on that committee. Now, is there a more or less 50-50 representation of men and women in the correlation department? You know, amongst the staff right now, amongst the staff, it, there's, there's, uh, I think there's four or five. Well, I, I guess I'm talking about the evaluation committee. They're men. They have some assistants that work with them that are women. At but least right the, now, the makeup is mostly men. Okay. All right. And uh, as far as ethnicity goes, I mean, most of them are coming from a um, an, an American context. I think so. Okay. Yeah. Now, on these committees, uh, I'll I'll just say this that on the the uh, with as far as curriculum and and composing committees for curriculum, we got to the point, because the technology had developed well enough, we could actually have people called from other nations. We had someone from Russia, someone from Brazil, someone from Australia that were actually getting on teleconferencing and being part of the curriculum committees to develop the curriculum. Prior to the technology being developed, there wasn't really a um, a practical way of incorporating uh, voices from those in Latin America and Africa and Europe. The practical way 10 years ago or, or 15 years ago was to find someone locally who had either lived there or had migrated from there to here. And so we would try and get that kind of a representation, even though they had been so-called Americanized. Mm -hmm. They had a lot of experience and life, life experiences, I should say, in other cultures. So that was one way we did it. But now with the technology, we can actually have people who don't have to live here along the Wasatch Front. They can be anywhere in the world and we can have them be a part of the committee. And how have these global voices, in your experience, influenced the writing of curriculum? Well, I mean, it's obvious, right? They, they have different cultures. And so if we try and present something that sounds like, you know, more like playing basketball than it does soccer, you know, they're going to – we don't talk about that in curriculum, sure, right? But that's, that's the kind of a thing. They have a completely – not completely different, but a fairly different culture, and they have traditions that they have where they live, and so and they bring that to bear on the curriculum. It, it even happens with along with people along the Wasatch Front. Someone who was raised in a particular family has different kinds of traditions and beliefs. They bring that to bear as well on their experience with writing curriculum. Now, what counsel would you have for you know a Latter Day Saint? You know, they identify as faith, but as you know, they're called to be a gospel doctrine teacher. They're reading a lesson, and something in that lesson 
maybe even something substantial doesn't really set well with them. And you know, this isn't just them being in you know, a persnickety or being difficult. They're saying, listen, I, I can't get on board with it. How are they to work through those feelings from your perspective? Yeah. So I would say this, that almost in every manual, the idea is presented that there is more material in this manual than you can discuss in one class period. You need to, as the teacher, you need to use your own inspiration to decide what you will emphasize and what you won't emphasize. So just that very natural desire to follow the inspiration of the Lord will be different from classroom to classroom. One teacher will see a part of the lesson they don't want to talk about, but they'll want to highlight this other one. The next teacher will say, no, I want to highlight the other and not the one. I think that gives a lot of leeway as far as teaching certain things. If someone doesn't feel comfortable teaching something, there's no reason why they should feel like they have to teach that, at least in my opinion, because there's enough of the gospel to teach that if there's something you don't feel comfortable with, there's plenty in the manual and plenty in the scriptures to be able to teach to not worry about that. And you know, this seems like a good time to, to state explicitly that you do not speak as an official representative of the church. Thank you. Yes, that's exactly right. I, Even though I work for the church and I've had experience with writing curriculum and teaching it, uh, I'm just giving you my own opinion about things. Excellent. So, you know, as we wrap things up, what counsel do you have for Latter-day Saints in general as they consume some of these materials, you know, whether they are gospel doctrine teachers, whether they're simply gospel learners? And, you know, these are saints who— they think of themselves as thoughtful, as critical, and I say critical in the best of ways, critical in the classical sense of measuring, right, of being exacting. What would you have them do as they pursue their gospel studies? So I'd say a couple of things. One, don't get frustrated with the simplicity of the curriculum that is used every Sunday. It's meant to be that way because we have members of the church that are all over the map as far as spiritual maturity, as far as level of understanding of gospel doctrine. And when you're writing for a worldwide church, you've got to keep it as simple as possible while at the same time providing enough, you know, so you get a little, you get some milk, but you also get a little bit of meat. Uh, That's one thing. The other thing I would say, every one of us ought to be studying as broadly and as deeply as we possibly can on our own. Uh, We can't, we're not going to get it all at church, and I don't think we're going to be as good as disciples of Jesus Christ if we don't do some studying on our own. The other thing I would say is that we need to look at the manuals as official from the church, but to be able to use them as sort of scaffolding to help us learn the gospel. There may be a few mistakes in there, but generally speaking, I think they're going to help build faith and help everybody learn the gospel more. Excellent. Thank you so much for joining us today, Dave. Thank you. It's been my pleasure. I hope it's been helpful. LDS Perspectives Podcast is not affiliated with The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The opinions expressed on this episode represent the views of the guest and podcaster alone, and LDS Perspectives Podcast and its parent organization may or may not agree with them. While the ideas presented may vary from traditional understandings or teachings, They in no way reflect criticism of LDS church leaders, policies, or practices.